And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the View from the Lane, the world famous Top Hospital podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly. And joined on the podcast today by both Charlie Eccleshare and Jack Pitt Brooke. Now, Jack, you weren't here for the Tuesday edition of the show. Uh, shame, because it was an absolute award winner. So let's start by getting your thoughts on whether Saturday's game at Anfield is a must-win for Spurs. Because on Tuesday, Charlie and James did not agree about this, and they disagreed with ferocious industrial language. Which way do you, which way do you go? I don't think it's a must-win. Yay! But it's tight. <laughs> Another huge victory yeah, for Charlie. It's, it's pretty marginal. I mean, I think Charlie won. James nil. What I would say is that they can't avoid. I think it's probably a must not lose. I think it'd be great if they could get points. I think they all they've got to do is try and avoid a, a negative three point swing this weekend. They've got to just hope that something bad will happen to Arsenal either this weekend or after, because they obviously can't rely on just the North London derby anymore. I think because I don't think I don't I think they probably won't win. Anfield. But the, the, the mathematics, and believe me, I have been over them with a jeweler's eyepiece. The mathematics suggest that the point is irrelevant. Zero and one points are irrelevant, thanks to them conceding that late goal against Brighton. Don't go on, Danny. They, they either win um, and keep, them, keep the fate in their own hands, or they lose or draw, in which case Arsenal can saunter about a bit more easily. So you think there's no route to fourth if they don't win? Oh, there is. Arsenal could lose all their games. But I think that's a really unlikely occurrence. So I, I can't remember, Danny. You, you think it is a must-win? I think it's. A, I, th- I think they have to win, yeah. I do. See, I, I just... I mean, I think it's quite clear that they don't because even if... Worst-case scenario from the weekend, they lose Arsenal win. That's five points. Mm-hmm. Spurs then need to win the derby and Arsenal to drop points against Newcastle or Everton. And mm-hmm. I just think that's that's very much possible. Um, of, of of course, like with all these must wins, winning would be immeasurably better, and the psychological damage that winning would do would be huge. Because Arsenal, I'm sure a lot of people, maybe not the players or management or whatever, but a lot of people connected with the club are starting to think we're going to go into the Leeds game two points ahead with the game in hand because Liverpool are so good. Everyone they kind of assumes they will win. Everyone assumed City would beat Spurs as well. City had won 14 of their previous and I assume Chelsea matches. would beat Arsenal. You know. Exactly, exactly. You know, and Spurs went into that game having lost their last three Premier League games. So, I, but so that's why I just, I just don't think it is. But yeah, a win or a win or a loss or a draw doesn't make any difference really in a point sense. I guess the only way it could do is they lost nine nil. Yeah. Well, that <laughs> yes. Well, that is. I mean, you know, I'm sure some of the more pessimistic uh, no, no, of the I, fan base no, are thinking that. a hammering affects the goal difference. But more mm. to the point, I think a draw, even if it still doesn't change anything massively 
the confidence it might give those players going into the derby to say we've just drawn with the best team in Europe we can we can smash this Arsenal team you know coming into that game off a draw rather than a feat makes a difference psychologically but yeah in points terms it it doesn't unless there's a scenario in which you're talking about Spurs drawing with Burnley and Arsenal losing to Newcastle and it getting very very granular but certainly in the short term it makes it makes no difference going into the derby whatever happens I hear I hear you saying that and I, I think we're getting into the world of mathematics here it's mathematically not um, imperative that Spurs win the game I just think that in the, in the way the season has gone and that is my my source of optimism the way the season has gone is is perfectly possible for a pretty average Spurs team um, who find themselves in the unlikely position of challenging for fourth to wander up to the best team in in Europe currently and win the game. I don't think it's very likely. It, obviously, you know, if it was at, if it was at White Hart Lane, I'd have much more hope. I don't know why. I just would. Um, I just think that Liverpool are uh, the efficiency of their results gathering currently at Anfield is extraordinary. Although, as as always, people would point out to me, you know, well, if if, if that logic is true, Danny, then Liverpool are never going to win another lose another match. If they're so efficient, they'll never lose another match, you know, and, and we know that that's not how football works. Just very quickly as well, I do think people are assuming Arsenal beat Leeds on Sunday, and I don't, I don't think that's a given, and it's and it's and it's massive potentially because if Liverpool are to beat Spurs, then if um, if Arsenal draw that game or lose it, then that would mean Spurs can go above them if they win the North London derby. So even if they lose to Liverpool, they still would have that opening if if Arsenal don't beat Leeds. And you know, Leeds are well, they're a bit less. You don't know what you're going to get now uh, under Jesse Marsh than they were under Bielsa. What you're going to get, in, I mean, I don't mean in terms of how they're going to play, but how effective it's going to be. A bit less of a surprise now, but you know, I, 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 that's going to be a very fraught, tense occasion. Whatever the result is on Saturday night. Jack, do you, do you share Charlie's, um, from a Spurs point of view, optimism that Leeds will put up much of a show in North London? Uh, I think Arsenal beat Leeds, but I do think Arsenal's last two games are hard. I think, I, I know that in theory Newcastle have nothing to play for anymore, but I think that, will be, that won't be an easy away game. You know, Newcastle are playing pretty well at the moment. They also, I think, the, you know, the atmosphere will be very much on top of Arsenal. It'll be a big kind of send-off to the Newcastle players after this, you know, much improved second half of the season. And then Everton on the last day, if, you know, if Everton have... I know Everton were terrible when we saw them at Tottenham, and I know their away record is horrific. But nevertheless, they have beaten Manchester United and Chelsea in the last few weeks. And I really don't think Arsenal will want to play an Everton team who say desperately need a point in that last game. So I think I Leeds... From what I've seen of Leeds recently, they look really bad. So I can't see Leeds putting up much of a fight, but I do think Newcastle Everton will be tough. So really, after an extraordinary season, which I thought with the fans coming back on mass to the grounds, this season would fly by. In fact, I think, Charlie, you pointed this out. It appears to have been interminable this season. It's gone on and on and on and on and on. There's been twists and uh, turns and plot developments and surprises and shocks and all the rest of it. So what it comes down to in the end is that Spurs are going to be reliant on Everton's away record and John Joe Shelby. This is where we are, is it? (laughs) 
Well, or it could be, or it could be down to Deli Alley. I oh. had this this sudden thought, you know. Oh, that is good. Oh, hold on, hang on. If, Let's if, warm my hands on that. That is <laughs> that is lovely. If Deli Alley sent Spurs into the Champions League on the final day for uh, for Everton against Arsenal, they have no control at all. The Spurs players and management over what happens with Arsenal's games, uh, or except the the North London derby, of course. So let's return to Anfield then. There's no point in, in in saying that Spurs can't win. That you know that may be what the, what the bookmakers and what logic dictates. But football is full of examples of things not turning out the way they do. Jack, give us a give us a scenario. What do Spurs have to do? How do they go about beating Liverpool? So the first thing they would have to do is be absolutely ruthless with their attacking play you know they will get openings I don't, I don't know if they'll get chances but they'll, you know we know how Liverpool defend it'll be what Van Dijk and probably Canate pushed really high up we know that Tottenham can find space doing that we saw that back in December when you know Tottenham played really well in that draw at White Hart Lane so there will be openings I've just got to make sure they, they take them the second thing I think that I, I'm a bit worried about I'm actually not worried about Spurs' capacity to score a goal the thing I am worried about is the way that Tottenham build up from the back, everything going through Romero. Like Liverpool are the best pressing team in history, and they're going to have, you know, whether it's Diaz, Mane, Jota, Salah, whoever, uh, charging around trying to nick the ball back. And it, you know, I love how Spurs play, but I think they're going to be running a risk. So I do wonder if they might be better at times just hoofing it. They've also got to cope with the the huge, amazing momentum and atmosphere and energy that Liverpool have at the moment. You know, this is the best, arguably the best Liverpool team in history. They're on the, they're what, a few wins away and hoping City slip up away from an unprecedented quadruple. They've got to put up with, you know, all those people jumping around and screaming and shouting when Liverpool score. And that's just the press box. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I Sorry, I've been meaning to get that dig in for ages, so... It does, it does seem, Charlie, if I have my optimistic head on, that there are few teams... God, this is going to sound so strange when Spurs lose 5-0. There are a few teams better equipped to take advantage of the, the only flaw you can see in Liverpool's team. It's not even a flaw. It is a slight weakness that they have allowed to develop in order to produce even more strength, and that is they will live two against two up front. Whether they'll do that against a two like Son and Kane... I don't know, but but on paper at least, Spurs do have tools that other teams don't have to get past Van Dyke and whoever is Van Dyke two on a day. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually writing a piece on this now, which is going up tomorrow morning on how Spurs could win this. And and as often happens when you do those sorts of pieces, you start to convince yourself, wait a minute, this could actually happen. But this I, is I a do, certainty, yeah, yeah, yeah. How Spurs will beat Liverpool on? Saturday. How could they lose? I, I, I mean, Liverpool are overrated, really. That, that's my Yeah, opinion. massively. Uh, but I think sarcasm comes across in podcasts. I know it doesn't on social media, but hopefully it did there. Um, yeah. shame, shame we have to flag it, but such is life. But I, no, I do agree. I mean, I think they... The, I mean, how Liverpool play is extraordinary. Like, they basically give you half the pitch to play with if you want it. Yeah, but they don't you know, give you the and, ball, do they? They just don't <laughs> give you the ball. But like, watching... When you watch Liverpool live, and I remember this from the game in December, you're like... The ho- they are all in the opposition half. And what that does mean, and I in the piece I show this, like there, there were some examples in that half. You remember Deli Ali's chance to, to go 2-0 up? That comes, Son is basically on his own in the half, racing through on goal, because Liverpool are so... They're just trying to swamp Spurs. Um, and you, you remember Son's goal last season in this fixture at Anfield, where he just raced through on goal from a pretty easy Lo Celso pass. I mean... 
And then and then in that game at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, the 2-2 draw, both Kane and Son scored from going in behind. And it's interesting, actually, because Kane, we don't really associate him now with kind of playing on the shoulder of the last defender. But in that game, as looking at it back, he, he, he obviously realises quite quickly that he can do that, um, the way that Liverpool is set up. And he scores that goal, the, the Ndombele uh, through ball. I mean, a big caveat to that is that Van Dijk didn't play in that game or the this equivalent fixture sure. at Anfield last season. But even with him in the team, you know, I look at this, they have conceded quite a few goals with that high line. And, and look, that high line is genius. It works brilliantly for them, but it only needs to falter once and you'd back Kane and Son to take advantage. They, they have two defensive ploys, don't they? They have the very, very high line where their compactness crushes you back into your own penalty area. And they have a very, very old-fashioned and efficient offside trap. Yeah, they're brilliant. Yes. they're brilliant at playing offside. They are the first team have worked out so that VAR is your absolute friend with offside, that you, could, you, you, you take the chance because in the old days where the linesman um, would have been giving the benefit of the doubt to the attacking team, there's no benefit of the doubt now. There's just are you onside, offside or on, and they take, they're, they're brilliant at it. But what, I want to combine the two things here because it strikes me that when Liverpool are putting the pressure on you, you're right to say their defenders, well, goodness knows, Trent Alexander-Arnold and, and, and Andy Robinson are, Robertson are, you know, they're, they're on the corner flags. The two centre-halves are often 10, 12 metres into the opposition's half. Therefore, it's one of those few opportunities in history where you can stand on the halfway line, on the centre circle, and you cannot be offside. You won't be offside against Liverpool. And therefore, what you describe as a hoof, but I would call a delicate uh, forward pass of some distance, you just play it over the top of them. Now, you still got to win the foot race, but, you know, Son can win a foot race. I'm not, I'm not backing Kuliszewski in this particular uh, operation, although he can play the ball. There are opportunities there. Now, look, teams just don't do it. They don't get the chance. They're, they're nervous. They, they don't have enough of the football. Their best players spend half the game shuttling between Liverpool's midfield passes or trying to close down their fullbacks. Otherwise, what's to say about it? You can't even beat them with set pieces, by and large. They're really good at heading the ball, particularly Spurs, be warned. A Spurs team that's not been very good at defending corners and set pieces against a team that really does, along with West Ham, powering a lot of goals from that source. I think as well, and Jack, you'll know this really well, but like that City game at the Etihad that Spurs won 3-2, I think there are things they can use from that game as well, because City similarly that day and as they generally are, were pushed up extremely high and were basically relying on can Kyle Walker keep bailing us out? And a lot of the time he did, but he didn't always. And Spurs did have a lot of joy that day. You know, you look at their first goal, again, it's Son in behind, exact, very similar to his goal at Anfield last season. And I just wonder if they, they use that as a, a template almost to say, look, we know we can beat one of the elite teams. And no one, not even close, has got as many points against City and Liverpool this season as Spurs, who have seven from nine. Which is pretty amazing. I think the, the interesting challenge will be it's very you know, it's very easy for us three to say all they need to do is put the ball in behind <laughs> and get some time. Just put it behind our score. Yeah. Well, in, it's better than it, sitting here saying there's no chance at all. I think. Well, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But it's like Liverpool obviously make it really difficult to do that because of how they press and how organised they are. And so the challenge really is going to be how did Tottenham manipulate the space to play that ball and do Tottenham have players with the quality to play that ball. Now, obviously, Kane's done a lot of that, but I do feel in the last few weeks, teams have been quite good at stopping the supply into but Kane. And I'm sure yeah. 
Yeah, and I'm sure whether it's Van Dijk kind of following him out or Fabinho sitting on him, like Tottenham, you know, Liverpool will certainly have a strategy for that. So I wonder if it might even fall to, I don't know, you know some clever play to get Romero or Benton Kerr free, because I assume it will be Benton Kerr and Hoiberg in the middle again. But I just think that that battle, you know, up against, I assume it will be, what, Fabinho... Tiago Cater or Henderson. Oh yeah, one obviously of the Henderson didn't start the VRL semi-final on Tuesday, so maybe he'll come back in for this. That'll be the challenge really for Tottenham. It's not so much Son making the run because we know he can do that. It's how do they manipulate the space in the middle of the pitch to to actually play that ball because you know they're going to get swarmed every time they got the ball. It may, and you're absolutely right to say that it is it, easy for us to sit here talking about the ball over the top. It's not that the forward players of other teams don't understand this and don't make the runs. It's the closing down, the pressing, the Gagan pressing, whatever today's name for it is, that doesn't get done. It stops the forward pass. And that's why I wonder whether, and now I'm complicating my original plan just to boot the ball long, whether Kuliszewski might have a, a big part to play here. We know he can pass the ball well. He holds it, he receives it, he holds off the first challenge because of his strength, and then somehow he's got to see out the corner of his eye that left-footed pass over the top of Liverpool's defence. I do think it's really interesting when you play Liverpool because broad, and again, this is very simplistic, but broadly, to beat their incredible press, you can either do what City do, which is be so good you can pass through it, but very, very few teams can do that. Or you do what a team like Burnley has done, and Burnley have had some joy against Liverpool in the last couple of years of just going of just going long, basically. But again, not that many teams are adept at doing that. I do think as well there's one other area. I think, well, there's a couple of things that could help Liverpool, uh, could help Spurs. One is that Liverpool have to win. They just have to. Like, a draw really does nothing for them. So if Spurs can get it to... And again, we're, of course, all of this is massively easier said than done. Yes. But this isn't a game earlier in the season when after 60, 70 minutes, Liverpool will attack. And of course, they always will. But they're not going to be stupid about it. I think they could be stupid about it. Because in a way, why not be stupid about it with 60, 70 minutes left? And that is where Spurs can be deadly, you know, against teams that overcommit. So I think there's a chance of that. And I do think the occasion, as much as it's going to be very hard for Spurs, there will be anxiety there. There just will be. Like, there's so much at stake. And if you can, you know, cast yourself in that villain party pooper role, we've seen these kind of upsets before. So, yeah. and, and, you know, they'll look at the Villarreal first half and say, look, Villarreal got in amongst them. Didn't show them too much respect. Show that they are beatable. My God, Francis Cochrane was bad yeah, in the match I mean, in the first half. You know, come Cochrane on. scoring a header. You know, yeah. weird things can happen. What about the team? I, I mean, it, I, I suspect we know the team now. It's going to be the same team as started the last game, but with Kuliszewski starting instead of Lucas Moore, yeah? Yeah, probably. I think I'd rather have Kuliszewski for this game yeah. than Lucas because it's not a game. It's not a game where they're trying to make something magic happen against a packed defense, is it? It's no. a game where they're going to have actually quite a lot of space to use. And they've got to use it cleverly, and when they do get the ball, they've got to be, use it intelligently and not just run into an opposition defender. So for me, it's a Kuliszewski game. The, the, the argument for for Lucas Moura or even Stephen Bergwijn is that since we've talked about the ball over the top so much, if you had two lots of pace. It might put some uh, some further doubt into them into the minds of let's be fair, pretty undoubt undoubt filled minds of Liverpool's defenders these days. Do you think Tottenham have a bit of a mental block in this game? Because they haven't. The last time they won at Anfield in the league was in 2011, and the last three times they've gone there, they've actually played fine and lost two mm-hmm. one. Th- uh, th- two of those to last minute winners for Liverpool. So I wonder if there's a bit of a I don't know a, a, maybe a mental block or mental mental problem that Tottenham have in this particular fixture? 
And to two of those games, they had massive chances yeah. at 1-1. I mean, I guess the other way of... Yeah, possibly. And, 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 I, and I was surprised, actually, because the record between the teams, not just at Anford as well, is massively in uh, Liverpool's favour. But I guess the flip side of that is that they know they've gone there. You know, they haven't been battered. It's As you say, it's three straight 2-1s, and then it was 2-2, the one before that, the, the Wanyama goal game. So I don't know. I don't know if that if they can channel that and say look this fixture last season we should have we should have won the game you know that was the one with Bergwijn with those chances Kane with the header but yeah it is just looking at it it's yeah Spurs have won one of the last 18 against Liverpool forgive me for talking about football before the Premier League but of course I I am vintage enough to recall Spurs' non-winning at Anfield run um, that took us up to the 1980s they hadn't won it famously people said since the Titanic went down in 1911. I think I'm right in saying that statistically it was the most games at top level that any club had gone against another club without winning um, the away fixture. Uh, nearly 70 years. And I, just for the sake of um, fun, I remember the the weekend came around for this fixture. I think, oh, goodness, what year would it have been? I'm, I'm, I want to say 1982. It was in the 80s sometime. Yeah, 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 it was. Yeah, I want to say 1982 and I'm probably wrong. And I remember watching the game on something called CFAX which was a kind of pixelated, computerized thing that the BBC ran, which allowed you to see the football results ticking through in real time. Um, Because, of course, no games were on television on, uh, I think it was a Saturday. And I remember sitting there watching the bloody CFAX, and it went nil-nil for for fully 80 (laughs) 80 minutes. And suddenly, it ticked yellow on the right-hand side for the away team, and it said crooks. And not for the first time, I remember a single tear rolling down my then rather less... Um, rotund face. We have had a shocking record at Liverpool over the years, and I totally get it. It's one of those grounds, Charlie. You ask, I suppose, or whoever asked if you've got a mental block against it, it's one of those grounds. Chelsea's another one where I think it's not about mentality. It's about, maybe this is tied to the mentality. Spurs find ways to lose, um, and it's almost like you're happy to do well. Talk about 3-1, 3-1, etc., you, you you put up an honourable show and then you find a way to get quietly away from the place with with, with, the, with the beating. They can't afford to do that this week. And they've got to show some some guts, some chutzpah. I have to say, I find it slightly depressing, and I'm sure Charlie does too, that you've had to uh, describe and explain what CFAX is. <laughs> yes. Because to English football fans, I guess English football fans above the age of 30, mm-hmm. you know, CFAX is how you grew up following in the 90s. Exactly, it's how exactly. how you but, followed all the scores. And yet equally, if I was talking to like a 15-year-old now and I tried to explain CFAX to them, they'd think I was, they mm. they wouldn't understand it. <laughs> it, it. Yeah, it is so crazy looking back on it. I used to sit there in front of, was it page 303? 303, yeah. yeah. 303 was, was top flight scores. Yeah. If you weren't at a game, and I guess you could have it on the radio as well, just sit there in front of this black screen with yeah. the scores rolling around. I do remember my dad, who isn't into football at all, coming in. I must have been eight or nine, and I was just doing that. And he was just like, what are you doing? You're wasting your life, son. Tell him to mind his own business. Well, look at me now. Yeah, exactly. You're on the <laughs> you're on the View from the Lane podcast. <laughs> well, famous and award-winning. Absolutely right. I always try to remember, uh, Jack, when I'm broadcasting, that there are people listening for whom, never mind CFAX, the idea of a landline, or um, mm. and as I recently rather chasteningly found when my nieces came over and they were in among my vinyl records, 
and they wanted to hear Michael Jackson. So I handed them, I think, off the wall and they had no idea how to make it play. None mm. whatsoever. They just stood there staring at the uh, foot square rectangle of cardboard and vinyl. So yes, we did. Ha- I did have to explain CFAX and I wish I'd done it better as well. You mentioned that uh, team, the last one there, t- 11 years ago. The second goal was scored by Luka Modric. Whatever mm. happened to him? Yeah, a certain Luka Modric. Can you? Can you? you you've obviously, you've obviously, Vaart, you've obviously looked it up, um, Jack. But Charlie, I have Charlie, can up. you? Um, <clears throat> do you want to guess the other, the ten other players? And there's no, there's no. Um, it's, this is not a catch question. Uh, you know, Clive Allen didn't suddenly come off the bench so, you know, to, <laughs> or to play. Um, it, it, it's actually a very nice team. Who was in charge here? Was it? Was this a red net team? Yes, this is yeah. the, this is the season they got the Champions League quarterfinals. It was an end of season game, nothing really riding on it. I remember Van, Van der Vaart scored the first goal, nice volley. Yeah. So Van der Vaart obviously played. He did. So I'll go from the start though. Gomez in goal. No, oddly enough, the reserve goalkeeper played. Oh right. Who would have been? Oh, Kudicini. Yeah, my favourite, of course, of all time in many, many ways. Carlo, back four. Uh, Asukotu left back. No, a, a, a young rising talent played left back. Danny Rose. Correct. Uh, then the usual then suspects are centre back. Dawson and King. Correct. And then and then a, a centre back at right back. I'm helping you here. Oh, okay. Uh, Kabul. Very. Oh, he's very good. He's got. He's. Have you opened this up on? Have you got? Have you got those glasses you, now that have computers in the screens? Yeah. I can. I can share my screen as oh, proof. No, I can share I, my internet history. Uh, I don't think I want to see that. But all, <laughs> all due respect. Um, so we've we've established that, that Luka Modric played. Um, and be- so yeah, and beside him in a two. Oh, um, Sandro. Very good. Tim Sherwood's mate, Sandro. That's exactly right. Because this must have because he scored that goal against Chelsea only about a month before this. Mm-hmm. This would have been this would have been about the time when he started to bring his brother to training to impersonate <laughs> him. Yeah, <laughs> Van der Vaart played, and left of him and right of him would have been. One is pretty obvious because he's made a lot of appearances for Spurs and I'll, I'll help you, he's still Ga- playing. Gareth Bale? No, actually not. He's still playing... Mm-hmm. In the Premier for, League. In, in the, the Premier, Premier League, yeah. Oh, right. Um, oh, Lennon. Aaron Lennon played right side. What about what about the left-hander? This is the most difficult one, I think, because it's hard well, to remember. I might be helped here because Jack and James were talking about him the other day, if this is the right guy, Stephen mm-hmm. Pienaar. I see. That's the one I would. Have, I would have definitely. Even though he's got the word "pie" in his name, I would have definitely <laughs> uh, fallen short there with Pinar. That's very much helped by yeah. Big and my, and, my and, consciousness. And up front, well, Crouchy. Crouchy, very good. That is a, that is either a tremendous uh, performance of acting because you knew it already, <laughs> or it's very very good. It would have been one of those where yeah, did the equivalent of like copying someone's homework, but you don't want to do it too well because no. that would arouse suspicion. So. Yeah. You're, chucking you're, a few wrong ones absolutely let's have a quick break we've got a lot to get through in the uh, second part of today's edition of the view from the lane um, we'll talk about charlie's article on stephen bergwine and we'll talk to jack um, who has had one driving lesson so far we'll talk about learning to drive in your 30s an experience that i share with him i didn't learn to drive until i was well into my 30s that's all coming up next here on the view from the lane
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to the second part of today's edition of The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. Jack Pitbrook and Charlie Eccleshare are with me. Charlie, you've written a piece on Stephen Bergwijn's future and asking the questions, obvious questions, should he have been given more opportunities by Conte and indeed the previous managers, and whether or not it could be, I want to say, a Memphis Depay-like mistake to let him escape from the Premier League to go off and, and do very well elsewhere. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison. Yeah, I mean, the piece is essentially reporting that all sides are expecting Bergwijn to move on in the summer. And I think what's interesting, there was a fear that, I mean, what Spurs have done often before is held out for pretty high fees for players. You know, you think Christian Eriksen when he only had a year left of his contract, etc. But I think they're moving towards an acceptance this summer that Bergvein. I mean, Bergvein just wants to go and play, which is totally understandable. And you've got the Celsone and Dombele. And I think they're just accepting they're going to have to accept fees that, you know, in a pre-pandemic world, they never would have done. But they're going to have to be realistic now because they've got a huge rebuild on. And if Conte's still in charge, he's going to want about 15 players through the door. And so 
they they just have to be pragmatic about it, move some of these players on. And yeah, I mean, like Ber- Bergvine's always. I mean, I start the piece by saying, you know, as they they're playing Liverpool this week, and in this fixture last season, Bergvine had those chances. He hit the post, and maybe a Spurs career would have been different had it gone in. But then I thought. Well, he couldn't have had a more spectacular moment than those Leicester goals and nothing has changed since then. He's he started one game and that was four days later against Chelsea. He hasn't started a game since the January transfer window closed when Ajax wanted him. He was pretty up for going there and he stayed. And, you know, that Spurs' prerogative. They need a squad. They can't just sell all their players who aren't playing regularly. But he's also slightly been a victim of circumstance because Spurs haven't had many games. You know, they've had two FA Cup ties no Europe, that's it outside of the Premier League. And he's settled on a very rigid Premier League team, I guess, with not much scope for ins and outs. And there's probably a surprise, even for Conte, how well Kulusevski has settled. You know, I I imagine in January when Kulusevski came in, in Conte's mind, he thought, well, yeah, this half-season Kulusevski will be, you know, good. But yeah, yeah, on and off, and it's a view to next season. And in that time, Bergvine and Mora are going to get, you know, decent minutes. They just haven't. And I, and I think for Bergvijn, he, he's had these incredible moments, like the um, the debut goal against City. He scored against United in the first game of Project Restart, those two goals against Leicester. He was also weirdly front and centre. You know, he was the guy who came on for Mora that prompted the sort of mutiny at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in Nuno's last game. It's always felt tantalisingly like, oh, maybe now's going to be the time where but he isn't, isn't, does kick isn't on. Isn't this the problem, Jack, is that so two years in, I can honestly say I have no idea whether Stephen Bergvine is a Premier League footballer or not because, uh, and this happens all the time in the in the squad-heavy uh, world and no easy matches Premier League, uh, he, doesn't, he just doesn't play enough to know whether he's good or not. Yeah, he doesn't play enough at the moment. It's, it's the kind of great unknown, isn't it? How good would he have been with a proper run? I don't. Do I blame Conte for not giving him that run? Not really. The previous um, managers too. I mean, he got a run yeah. under, under Mourinho, didn't he? Mourinho and and Nuno really liked him. Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy with Bergwijn, but equally, I don't blame Conte. I don't really blame Conte for not playing him more. I think recently, I just think that you know Conte's under quite a lot of short term pressure. Tottenham mm. need to get Tottenham need to finish fourth. And there's no guarantee that Bergwijn will consistently deliver goals and assists, which is really what he's in the team to do. And frankly, he hasn't done. As much as I like, like, I do really like him. I like watching him. Uh, he seems like a decent guy and I want him to do well. And he's ex- re- when he's in full flow, he's really exciting to watch when he's got his confidence up. But in terms of goals and assists, he's not obviously not delivered, really. I mean, he had that great... He His best run was in that period where Spurs went top under Mourinho yeah. that ended with that miss he had against Liverpool in that game where they lost and that was a big turning point. But he he kind of had this quite selfless run around loads role where Kane and Son got the goals and the assists. He also covered the right fullback with great with great diligence, I thought. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Aurier, who had a one of the you know, you're saying about self destructing at Anfield. I mean in one of those two ones he gave away a penalty in exactly the way you're describing the game in October 2019. Mm-hmm. But it's always an interesting one, isn't it, with players who don't play enough and they don't get a run. I mean, it's a bit chicken and egg. You, you need to show, I suppose, that you absolutely deserve that run. And and sometimes players just get lucky. You know, it might be circumstances that a few injuries mean he has to play loads or someone's suspended or something. And the, the problem is, well, it's not a problem, but, you know, Spurs have Kane and Son, so there's one attacking spot in the in the system Conte plays. And then Kudusevsky got that on on a lock pretty quickly. 
And then you are just feeding off scraps. So I think it's, you know, it's probably going to be best for all parties. It'll be interesting to see where he goes. I mean, Ajax have been really keen on him, are really keen on him. Obviously, Ten Hag has moved yeah. to United and Ten Hag's always liked him. I mean, a lot of clubs are, are really interested. The, the challenge is that I think we forget how badly teams have been hit by the pandemic. And, you know, even, you know, Villarreal, the Champions League semi-finalists, they're doing loans, loans with options and obligations. You know, they're not going to come in and be like, yeah, we'll give you 20 million for Bergvine. You know, that... Their entire exactly. starting 11 cost less than 100 million the other night. Exactly. If I was to be really sympathetic to Bergwijn, I might say that I really don't... It's, I mean, it's pretty clear, I think, though, that since the sacking of Pochettino, Tottenham has not been a good club for players to develop. You know, it, it used to be, under Pochettino, lots of players got a lot better under Pochettino. But Bergwijn obviously arrived in, what, January 2020, a few mm. months after Mourinho. And frankly, if you take a step back and look at that look at that sort of two and a half years since the since the appointment of Mourinho, the only players who've played well for Tottenham have been, like, ready-made, really good players. Kane, Son, Lloris, Romero, uh, maybe Dyer, maybe Benton Curry mm-hmm. and Kulisevsky. So it's not... It's, and it's been tough because... Skip, 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 would skip, be skip, skip yeah. sorry, that's a fair point. Skip is one who's developed, but if maybe if Bergwijn had played under Pochettino or a manager who really wanted to, to to improve players with coaching and see them develop and teach them his style of play, then maybe it would have been better. But I feel like you know Bergwijn's basically been thrown into this into a club that's veered between different strategies. That's appointed Mourinho, then sacked him, and then Nuno, and then sacked him, and then Conte. And I think it's it's difficult for someone who is not a kind of plug and play elite player to thrive in that kind of circumstances. And you've seen the same thing with Sessegnon, Lo Celso, and uh, arguably Regulon. Like quite a lot of talented young players that Tottenham have signed in the last sort of five years haven't improved. And maybe it's maybe that's their fault. Maybe it's the club's fault. That's a really good point. And and I think you look at Bergvine and he's had four managers in two and a bit years. There was that full lockdown and, you know, he was two months into joining a new club, new country, and the country goes into this full extreme lockdown. The football's cancelled. Spurs have had, you know, a couple of mutant, genuine fan mutinies in that time. I mean, it's not been the most settled, stable period for a young player to come in and develop. And he gives the he gives the impression of being one of these people who needs confidence as well. He doesn't he, yeah, he doesn't arrive so. on the pitch already a world beater. It's, it, very few of them do. Uh, I suppose Stephen will move on, and you know I wish him all the best. And you know if you, if like Memphis Depay was the, you know, the comparison I made, if he ends up at Barcelona somewhere down the line, we'll just add him to the list, shall we? Of few hmm. that few that got away. Here's a horrible thought. I mean, I already did dislike the, the new format for the Champions League, you know, this league that's coming in, is it 24-25? Sometime like that. But now now they're considering UEFA scrapping the two-legged semifinals. They want to play a midweek semifinals, one match in the same city as the final takes place. And I understand the television and uh, other, I understand the uh, attraction of that, particularly after that lovely mini tournament we had in the middle of the pandemic. But... It means you'd never get another Amsterdam. You'd never get another Real Madrid-Manchester City. I'm not sure it's the greatest idea, actually. I quite like the semi-finals being three-hour epics, or in the case of, uh, of last night's game between uh, Real and Manchester City, uh, you know, three-and-a-half-hour epic. What's your feelings? I'm against this. I think, I, think it's, I think the main reason that I'm against this is I think it's like fundamentally morally important that 
as many fans as possible should be able to go to these games. So, for example, for these two particular games, I think there were, what, 50,000 fans at the Etihad Stadium and then 60,000 fans at the Bernabeu. And, you know, there'll be some overlap because of away travelling fans. Sure. Let, for the sake of argument, let's say it's 110,000 fans were able to see these games. Obviously, if you just stick them in one... If you'd had a one-legged semi-final, which obviously wouldn't be either of those places, it would be like a third, third party. Yeah, well, well, you know what? I mean, I, let, let's just say for the sake of argument, it'd be the Allianz Arena, for example, mm-hmm. not the UEFA call it that. Then all of a sudden, that would be a Champions League final type event. There'd be tickets to the UEFA family. Of course. Each, each team would get, let's say, 10, 15,000 seats for each game. There'd be 3,000, 5,000 journalists. But because you've got both semi-finals and the final at the Allianz Arena over the course of a week... That means you've got far too many people going. You've got fans of four different clubs. You've got journalists covering four different clubs. Plus, you know, the VIPs, the wafer family, all that kind of thing. So travel becomes really difficult and hotels become really difficult. And being, whether it's a Man City fan, a Real Madrid fan, Liverpool fan, BRL fan, whoever, if all those four sets of fans were descending on Munich for this week of football, this week rather than playing a leg each in their home stadium and a leg each in the, in the away stadium, hardly any of them would get to see their teams play. And I don't. And maybe it would be better on TV. I don't know. I, I don't think it would. I mean, these games haven't been bad TV, but it would be. I think it's morally wrong to deny fans the chance to watch their teams play something. Well, better. first of all, let me say, Jack, well done. I, that hadn't even occurred to me, and nor had the fact that you were going to be the man of the people hadn't occurred to me either. But there you are. Both things are absolutely Why, true. Why did you think I was going to take the UA for points? No, 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 I, no I did not. But I didn't think you would be so, Charlie. Uh, uh, any come back? Any pushback on this? <laughs> as a UEFA company man through yeah and through. you are no I mean I think just from a purely footballing point of view it feels bizarre because the Champions League semi-finals have been consistently unbelievable over the last few years I mean you, you take it last season was weird pandemic then obviously the year before wasn't the norm you know it was uh, the kind of abridged yes, um, yes. version wasn't it because it was Project Restart but then 2019 you had that you had the consecutive nights of Barca, of Liverpool Barca and Ajax Spurs, 2018, you had the Liverpool-Roma one that was a ludicrous score in aggregate. Yeah, I can't remember what ended up finishing. And so I just, I can't... Why would you want less of a good yeah, thing, you know? It's, it's it really, and then obviously last night was so staggeringly brilliant. And there have been others as well. So it feels, um, it feels odd to be trying to tamper with such a, a good format. And my, our best hope here, and man, oh man, these words really cross my lips other TV companies who might say, what, hang on, you, you want us to have less of these semi-final matches and they may yeah. push back pretty hard against it. I'll tell you what, UEFA, uh, I hate your league uh, proposals and I don't like the semi-final proposals unless, unless we could do a deal. And that is an open draw for the group stages. Get some proper jeopardy back into this tournament. And if Bayern Munich, Barcelona, Manchester City um, and, I don't know, Locomotive Zivsniak have suddenly got a great team, if they all get drawn in the same group, great, fantastic. Let's have that. Bring it on. But then you might lose semi-finals like Real Madrid, Man City. You might. I still reckon you'd get poor, pretty good teams in the semi-finals. And that was just an excuse, really, to mention Amsterdam already three years into the mists of time. What a shame that is. Is it coming up to the three-year anniversary? Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's it must our, be about our, our anniversary piece, Jack. Surely you're, you're oh, yeah, yeah, working yeah. on Big an 8,000-word piece about it. We've done it already. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Right. And I think Two eight thousand words might be um, might be pessimistic on the workout. Uh, no, no, what, no yeah. James told me it'd be about three thousand by the time he's finished with it. I think it was pushing that piece was probably pushing the ten k mark. Oh. Basically, a dissertation. Well, no, last novelist. night was 
Yeah. Yeah. Last night was really the closest thing I can think to that since it happened, yeah. right? Like to have a to have a semi final where a team is seconds away from well I mean City Ajax were closer to going I guess because the away goals rule, Ajax were closer to going through, weren't they? They yeah. were five seconds from going through, whereas City were only actually like five minutes away from going mm. through. So in that sense, Ajax was a more uh dramatic turnaround than what we saw last night, which I guess is really a I mean, that is the beauty of the that was the beauty of the away goals rule, wasn't it? Was going yep. from I was gonna say to winning that, in one goal. That is the only shame of last night that without the away goals rule, you didn't have the going from loss to win, which was such an I mean, I was a I am a big advocate of the away goals rule, and that was one of the reasons why. Because but we, maybe that's the only the, time in football we yeah. can have that. Would it have been I don't I, I've got a theory, and this might be completely nonsense, but I've got a theory that the first leg's been better this year because of no away goals rule. That like, that C- is possible. City were really City through quite a city played quite aggressively and risk takingly in that first leg. And I reckon if there's in the away goals rule era, City would maybe have been a little bit more cautious in that first leg. Yeah, that was the flip side that people did often underestimate of the away goals rule was that did mean the home team in the first leg often yeah. were pretty scared because nil nil was often a pretty taking decent, nil nils go yeah, away. Yeah. Y- you we'd would. gone we'd gone the pendulum had just gone completely you know, I remember when they brought in the rule and it's to stop away teams from just parking ten yeah. in their penalty area and saying go on then because uh, you know the, the, the nil one defeat will do us fine. Then we got to the stage where the home teams were slightly cowed by the prospect of a decent team getting the away goal. I do also think a great thing about the away goals rule is it reduces how often you get extra time. And I think extra time in football is just often really quite rubbish. Well, we saw even last night once the penalty went in um, for Real Madrid, uh, extra time comprised them almost entirely of play acting and substitutions, didn't it? Mm. Um, you know, mm. I, they, I could just run any any number of old matches and see play acting and substitutions. I don't need that. It was very, very clear to me watching last night that as soon as Benzema scored, it was game over. Like, there was no way that City were going to score after Benzema had scored that penalty. Fernandinho did have that chance. He did, he did, he did. I think it was a slightly harder chance than it looked. Sure. But there wasn't really, there was no, the conditions didn't exist to play football during extra time. They never do. Everyone's exhausted. Everyone's making changes. Everyone's lying on the ground for mm. five minutes. So you're never, ever going to be able to play football properly during that during that time. Okay, well, let's end. I'd like to, be, you know, on a personal note here, because as someone who learned to drive in their mid-30s, um, very quickly because I was offered a new job uh, by a new company, and um, in those days, it was a tax break to have a shiny new t- company car, insisted on a company car, got it, and then realized I couldn't drive. So I had to learn. I've been brought up in central London. What do I need a car for? Um, so, But I had now had a car and no way of driving it. Jack, why have you suddenly decided that you must drive? Uh, it's it's kind of embarrassing to be in your 30s and not be able to. And when the number of people you know who also don't drive kind of diminishes towards zero. You're kind of worried about being the, you know, the last one left. <laughs> Is there a fraternity? Yeah, we've got like a, a, group? <laughs> a yeah, we've got like a secret Facebook group. <laughs> Non-drivers in our 30s, but yeah, that's why I'm uh, starting. And you've, had, you've had, had one, one lesson. lesson. How did that go, Jack? So if, uh, it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult. I, had no, I kind of had no idea how hard it would be. And this is, and I'm learning on automatic as well, so I've got no excuse. I just found steering hard. So if if anybody's in this, if anybody's in the uh, the car park of the big Sainsbury's in New Cross, which is of course the- where Rishi Sunak famously filled up that random bloke's car the other week. <laughs> if you see somebody driving erratically uh, early in the early in the morning at some point soon, it's probably me. <laughs> Well, uh, we can only wish you the best of luck with that, Jack, although the car park, but uh, I never remembered that this must be a new thing. I never remembered having to learn in a car park. How many lessons do you reckon it'd take you 
The traditional thinking is that for every year of your life, you need one lesson. But when I look at the cost of driving lessons now, that, that, that seems prohibitive to me. I feel like I will need about 80. Okay, um, good. Good. But yeah. Well, Jack, I'll give you my... I, d- I do remember when I was learning to drive, my instructor said to me, he was like, you know, every, every so often you just get these guys, they just get it. It just clicks instantly. Yeah. You're not one of them. Um, <laughs> so, all right, cheers. Why, why have you told me that? Man? Jack, I'm going to give you my, my tip that got me through uh, learning in my mid-30s and passing the test first time. Think about your immediate circle of friends and family. Think about the ones who can drive and then think about which of those is the thickest person among them. Now, I had a very, very great role model in this. I yeah. won't mention their name. Mm. Think about the thickest person you know who can drive a car properly and think, good God, if they can do it, then surely I can do it. I do remember thinking that when learning to drive, it was like, or even before, yeah, before starting, it was like, it is incredible to think everyone can do this. Like, <laughs> it, it can't persons. be that hard. Listen, guys, it's been um, an, a treat, as always, um, as we drive the figures here on the podcast way beyond those of newly launched television stations. Um, thanks to Jack and thanks to Charlie. Thanks to you for listening. We'll be back again on Monday. You know what I always say to discuss this, to Spurs' triumph at Anfield, only this time, I really hope it's true. And of course, um, if you're listening away to us here, you should also be a subscriber to The Athletic and you can sign up right now to read all of our articles on Spurs, including that piece by Charlie on Stephen Bergwijn's future. There's a million other things on the site as well. It's just fantastic. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for just one pound a month for six months. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Back on Monday. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.